This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The teacher is the most important factor affecting how much children learn. Of course, it makes a difference if classes are too big or the library is not well stocked or the buildings are not well maintained, but most parents would make sacrifices on one or all of these other important dimensions if they could only get an excellent teacher for their child. Studies have shown that an excellent teacher over the course of his or her lifetime are worth millions of dollars to the children that that person teaches. That's how much better children will do later in life if they are exposed to a great teacher as distinct from an ineffective one. So how do we get effective teachers? That's the big question. And to discuss this topic with me, I have today uh, Wayne Lewis, the former Commissioner of Education for the State of Kentucky, and currently the inaugural Dean of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Lewis, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Lewis, there are studies of teachers around the world that show that U.S. teachers are less skilled than those of many other countries. So, why is it? Why do we have a less effective teaching force in the United States than in other countries, do you think? I think it's important first to note um, that we have incredible teachers in the United States. Right? Um, there's few people would disagree um, that across our country, across the states and school districts, there are teachers that are absolutely outstanding. The big challenge that we face in the United States is in too, too many cases, particularly in classrooms that serve uh, predominantly kids from low-income backgrounds, kids with disabilities, kids of color, um, that we don't have an even distribution of those teachers. Uh, the literature shows us really clearly uh, that if you are a child of color, a child with a disability, child from a low-income background, you are more likely to have a teacher um, that, that we would judge as being less effective um, and or less experienced. That's our biggest challenge. And that, that happens for a number of different reasons. One, um, there simply are not enough high-quality teachers to go around. And when you have a system where there are not enough to go around, and teachers have the opportunity to choose where they want to teach, teachers tend to choose to teach um, in places where they don't face as significant a challenge um, as they would in other places. The other thing that we face in the United States is um, we have to do some improvement in colleges of teacher education and teacher training to ensure that anyone we're recommending for licensure um, as a teacher does in fact meet some minimum standard, both in terms of their content knowledge and in terms of their pedagogical skill. Uh, the other thing that I would point out, which is uh, probably the most controversial of the three, um, is that we have to think much more intentionally about teacher accountability, right? So there, there has to be um, some mechanism, um, and I would argue in, in terms of state policy um, and local district policy that ensures that if you are a classroom teacher, that you are in fact meeting some minimum standard of effectiveness. And then if you are not meeting that minimum standard of effectiveness, then, then district and or school leaders need to have tools in their tool belt that they can use to either improve your performance or if need be, remove you and replace you with a more effective teacher. Well, that's a lot to chew on, uh, Dr. Lewis. Uh, but uh, let's take your first point and why is it 
that we can't find a way to get the best teachers into the places where they're most needed, where we have children with disabilities, children of color, children with serious socioeconomic disadvantages at, on the day they come to school. Why can't we design our system in such a way as to bring our best resources to bear on one of our most serious problems? What could we do about that? You know, unfortunately, it's the case that in, in most states, we have not created incentives um, to attract teachers to the most challenging environments. Um, and it's, it's no secret that, that in, in some schools, some school districts, um, some parts of the country, the job of teaching is a more challenging job. We're going to have to, to, to use incentives and in salary, incentives and in benefits, incentives and in conditions to attract the most effective and I would argue most experienced teachers to those places. Um, but, but our failure isn't just in not creating those types of incentives. We've gone in many states to great lengths to prevent those types of incentives. Um, from being put into place. So as commissioner in Kentucky, one of the things I advocated for um, in state policy uh, was statutory change that would permit districts to use um, incentive structures to attract highly effective teachers and retain highly effective teachers in school districts. You wouldn't believe the degree of resistance we face just in wanting to advocate to create more flexibility or districts to create those types of incentives. So we weren't even advocating for a particular type of incentive structure. We said to, to districts and to superintendents, if you want to continue to do the same thing that you're doing now and use a single salary schedule that pre prevents the type of differentiation that we'd like to see, you can continue to do that. We just want to remove the statutory provisions that prevent you from having that flexibility. And we faced incredible um, pushback just from wanting to create the additional flexibility. Well, there is this salary schedule that says you're paid on the basis of the number of years you've been teaching and the degree you have, whether it's a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or maybe some extra education uh, beyond the master's degree. But uh, you would think that you could say, all right, we desperately need to have teachers who are training in special education, or we desperately need to have a physics teacher or a math teacher, or we desperately need to attract people into the schools that are the most challenging to, to manage the students. Why, why is it that there's so much opposition to altering this, this flat schedule, which no other business does? You're right, it, it, it's really a common sense type education reform. It's not some far right wing idea that we uh, be looking at trying to bring into, into education. Um, you know, I think one of the mistakes people make in looking at differentiating teacher pay and differentiating incentives for teachers based on the area that they teach in, uh, their subject area, or, or teaching in hard to staff schools is they equate teachers pay um, to an individual's value. And, and those two are not one in the same. I, I use the, the example of, of higher education um, when I'm talking to my K-12 colleagues and say, you know, as a, as a professor at the University of Kentucky, my salary was nowhere near commensurate with my, as my, my colleagues in the College of Business with the same degree and the same amount of experience. 
Uh, does that mean that um, as a person, they had a higher value than I did or that they had a, a higher uh, value to the University of Kentucky? I would argue not. Um, but there's a difference um, in terms of the market um, for my skill set as an education professor versus um, the, the skill set um, of a professor of accountancy. And, you know, the, to, to carry the higher education comparison even further, if we were to take the, the type of, of thinking and the, the policy framework that we use in K-12 schools with the single salary schedule to not, where we don't want to differentiate pay based on area of expertise, based on um, hard to staff positions, if we were to put that into higher education, we would have the same challenges. We wouldn't be able to attract professors of law, professors of um, um, accounting, professors um, of engineering, professors of accountancy. We couldn't find those things if we said, well, we have to pay all faculty members the same as we pay um, a professor of English, a professor of education, a professor of sociology. As you said, it just doesn't work. Well, you know, that's a really crucial point, and I'm glad you brought it up, but I do think uh, it's not all money. There are other issues out there, and one of the issues that's out there is, is when you brought up about teacher preparation. We got to make sure that teachers are qualified uh, in their subject matter to teach as well as in their uh, effectiveness in the classroom. Now, you're a dean at a school of education, this is one of your responsibilities. What are you doing in these areas? What is, what is it that's the next, the forward step that needs to be taken in this respect? So I, I, I talk about it in a couple of different places. Um, at, at the elementary level, in preparing teachers who will go into elementary school classrooms, we are doing everything we can to make sure we're providing the grounding, the foundation across um, the subject areas that teachers are going to teach. Um, much of that happens in our general education program. And so we put even some provisions um, as a part of our general education program to ensure that our elementary teachers have the type of broad foundation that we need them to have. At the secondary level, um, that means continuing to require that our secondary education majors also have a partner major in the content area in which they intend to teach. Um, so we're recommending teachers for licensure in Tennessee. Um, and so that means um, you have a major in secondary education. You also have a major in chemistry if you're going to be a licensed chemistry teacher. Or you also have a major in history if you're going to be a licensed history teacher. We think the balance of um, ensuring that there's adequate preparation in pedagogy and adequate preparation in the content area at the middle and second, second um, middle and um, secondary level is absolutely um, essential. Uh, but, but you know, there's, there's additional work to be done, you know? So at the graduate level, we prepare students through alternative means of certification. Um, we have some graduate programs that look more like our undergraduate programs and um, ensure we can do more to ensure that students have the type of foundation and the content areas that they need. But there are others, quite frankly, um, that don't meet that standard. Um, and it gets to the type of inequity that you're talking about. So to be more specific, one of the, the, the programs that we offer that is an essential program but I wish were not um, the case um, in American education is our job embedded program, which means this is for 
candidates who come in who have no background or preparation in education, and they are going to go immediately into a classroom as the teacher of record, and then they'll continue their preparation with us taking courses in the evening and taking courses in the summer. Now, the reality of programs like that is that they are necessary evils. Because if, if you did not have programs like that, school districts would be forced to hire substitute teachers to take those teaching positions. The other side of that, though, is, is nobody who has a, a choice in terms of who their um, child's teacher is going to be is going to raise their hand and say, give me the novice teacher with no background or experience in education who's learning along the way. And, and while we do everything we can to provide great preparation, and I'm proud of the work we do with that program, the reality of the, of the situation, Paul, is that my daughter in the public school that she attends is not going to get um, a teacher with no background or experience in education who's working on their certification as they move along the way. The reality is those teachers are going to serve kids who oftentimes are in the greatest need of teachers with incredible expertise who are incredibly effective. But instead, um, they're gonna be served by somebody who entered through an alternative means, someone like me, to be frank with you. I entered the teaching profession in that way. That is inequity that is baked into our system. Yeah, but now I, I'm not so sure that's such an inequity because there are people like you who we desperately need in education who were doing other things before that and but found a call to the teaching profession and 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 some of these people have outstanding skills and they and they have a maturity that uh beginning teacher may not have and so i think that this alternative channel isn't just sort of a necessary evil i think it could also be a positive good you could bring a lot of good people in through this this channel I think there could, I think there's definitely positives that come from it because we bring people into the profession who otherwise may not have been into the profession. Here's why I call it a necessary evil. Because the reality is people who enter the profession like that, like me, are always going to go to serve our most vulnerable classrooms. If it were the case where there was a, a broader distribution of people coming into the education profession through alternative means. And, and some were going to go to middle income classrooms, some to more affluent classrooms, some to higher needs classrooms. I think that'd be a different conversation. But, but the fact that, that we only bring in, for the most part, folks who are inexperienced and have no background and put them only most times in classrooms where students need the most effective teachers, that's an inequitable system. Well, but now why do we have this shortage of teachers? We have lots of schools of education out there. I think we have more schools that are per person or per 100,000 people than most countries. We have, I think that we have 1,400 schools of education. We, 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 we should be doing all that we need to do with all the institutions we have out there. Where's the, where's the, where's the shortcoming? Yes, I think a few things, even prior to the current time when we're struggling more than we have in previous generations to attract people to the profession. Um, the reality is teachers tend to remain in the geographic areas where they're trained. So for, for the most part across the country, when a teacher, uh, a teacher candidate goes into a teacher preparation program, in general, 
they, they want to teach in areas that are um, pretty close to the area where they receive their training. And in most cases, the area where they receive their training is pretty similar, if not the same area where they grew up. Um, and so you have the large numbers of teachers um, who grew up in suburban, middle-class environments. And most teachers, whether you grew up in an urban environment, a suburban environment, or a rural environment, you tend to want to teach in communities like your community. So one of the things we're going to have to do a better job of even outside of the teacher shortage, the current teacher shortage, is recruit, do a better job of intentionally recruiting people from more diverse backgrounds into teaching. We need more people who come from high poverty rural communities to go into the profession. We need more people from high poverty urban communities to go into the profession because we have a greater likelihood that those folks will want to serve in those communities where we need to attract more teachers. So that's, that's, that's one piece of it. The second piece is we're going to have to think more intentionally about how we recruit people into the profession writ large. Uh, I, I would dare say that we have a profession, a teaching profession today, that is not structured in a way that's incredibly attractive to young people looking for something to do. Um, and one of those areas is, is, is in thinking about how younger generations think about jobs and careers. We know different than previous generations, young folks only want to do something for a couple years. There's very few people that are looking for something to do 20, 25, 30 years. And so we're gonna have to better structure the profession, including thinking about things like retirement programs and benefits that are more conducive to people who want to come in, give it everything they have for five or six years, and then still be able to transition into something different. It's a different model. Yes, I know. I have a daughter now in New York City, and I think she's now worked there for over 10 years, and she's now finally been promised that if she does retire, she will get a pension. But it took 10 years before she would get a single dime in pension benefits. And somehow that doesn't seem right to me, because there's a lot of people who come in and work for five years or seven years and then decide to, to move on to something else that they would get no pension at all. It, it, it seems to me like that's a crazy system. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, as we think about alternatives to, what, to systems, retirement systems that have served previous generations of teachers incredibly well, I think we have to think about these alternatives while first of all, promising and ensuring that the benefits that were promised to current and past teachers, that we, we make sure that they get those benefits. Um, while also saying that system doesn't work well for what younger people want. We're going to have to do more than one thing at a time. And we, we can do that. It's essential if we want to attract the type of folks we want to attract into education. So how is this, as a person working on the ground, how, how is the system responding to the COVID crisis and the need to teach, you know, two days a week instead of five and some classes online, some in the class. It's a, it's a, it's a transformative moment that we are in, in, in education. So how are teachers responding to this and what, what's the feedback you're getting at, at Belmont? So I'm, I'm seeing great diversity um, in terms of how districts and teachers have responded by and large what we're seeing in the fall um, in Tennessee and across the country is that districts and teachers are better prepared 
to deal with the transition um, to using either blended approaches or completely remote approaches um, than they were in the spring. You know, we're talking about really overnight um, transforming the way schooling was delivered in the spring, and nobody was really prepared for that. Um, we knew, many of us knew that this was a possibility for the fall, and so districts did a lot better of a job of preparing over the summer. Now, with that said, some districts have done a much better job at preparing for this transition than others have. Um, I, I've seen some districts in Tennessee and across the country who did a great job of providing training and professional development and putting models and structures in place that teachers can work in, um, where teachers aren't required to invent or reinvent everything on their own, but they have resources and things that they can lean on to provide um, effective services for kids. And unfortunately, I've seen some other districts um, that haven't been as structured and put a lot more of that onus on individual classroom teachers to kind of come up with a way to make it work. And that generally is not an approach that serves, serves kids well. Uh, on the teacher preparation side, what it has forced us to do is do a much better job in preparing people going into the profession to operate in this environment. Um, because I'll tell you, generally speaking, that's not something we've done a great job of as teacher preparation programs. I would even, and specifically for us, that's an area of growth for us at Belmont is doing a better job of preparing um, teachers to be able to, to effectively deliver instruction through online and blended approaches. This moment has forced us um, into, into that, but it's a positive thing. I think it's good. So what do you see as a long-term trajectory that once we recover from this crisis moment, are we going to see a new direction in teacher preparation, in, in teacher uh, uh, classroom management, uh, the approach to education? What, what do you see as the direction in which the country is going to move or, or the state of Tennessee is going to move? One thing that I believe is certain is that conversations about school choice um, are forever changed. Um, I've heard more conversations among parents um, in particular about um, the right to choose the way their children receive educational services um, during this COVID era than I've ever heard before. Now, most of that conversation centers on uh, the belief that parents should have the right to make decisions on whether their kids receive in-person educational services as opposed to um, online or some type of blended approach. Uh, but I believe the fact that so many districts across every state are, are looking at or providing more options, whether it's online, in-person, or blended than ever before, um, will change the conversation and frankly, will change it in such a way um, that online learning as an option or blended learning as an option I think will become much more the norm across districts. I, I, I describe this as a genie that's out of the bottle that I don't think you can put back. Um, the option of being able to, to, to um, have school online or partially online is gonna have to become pretty standard, I believe for us across the country. Uh, one of the other changes that uh, I think it's gonna take some time for us to, to figure out uh, where we go is this has exposed some of the inequities 
in public education that many of us have known about and have been talking about for a long time. Right? The gaps that we're seeing, um, the, the, the areas for improvement in terms of better meeting the needs of kids who come from low-income backgrounds, kids of color, um, these have been there forever. Fortunately, I think um, COVID is forcing districts, leaders, educators, and parents to grapple with that reality in a way that we weren't willing to grapple with it before. So it presents an opportunity, hopefully, for us to use tools like technological tools to better assess, better diagnose, and better strategically intervene um, with children's learning than we have previously. Um, I mean, when you look, look at certain populations of kids, um, I don't think it's a stretch to say we can't do much worse. Um, my hope is that we use this opportunity to really move the ball forward and never go back to where we were previously. Well, let me ask you one final question about a very controversial topic that's been out there now for several months or more. And that is the whole feeling that our social studies curriculum needs to be infused by uh, a different understanding of the place of race in American history. It's called the 1619 Project. I know you've heard of it. Uh, and uh, it, it would be the New York Times uh, put out this magazine and it's been uh, recommended for classrooms and places across the country. And uh, some people think it's, it's great because it really does uh, point out how important the race issue has been in American life from its very beginning and all the way down to the present time. It's never gone away and it's had profound consequences. And other people think that it hasn't focused on the, the accomplishments of the African-American community and its ability to uh, take advantage of the uh, freedoms and opportunities of our society. So how do you assess this? Is this a, a, a positive development or is it, is it not? You know, social studies, academic standards and content is, is um, probably the most controversial area to, to deal with. Um, as, a, as commissioner of education, we, we adopted new standards, uh, new, second, second, new social studies standards right before I left office. Um, I think science standards are probably second to social studies in terms of um, how controversial they can be. Um, I, I will admit that I have not examined the 1619 project. Um, I do understand generally what the, the, the idea behind it is, what it is conceptually. Um, you know, what, what I can say without having examined it is I do believe it is critically important that we have academic standards across on the board across all of our states and social studies that permit us to um, teach American history um, in, in its fullest sense, right? To understand the, the establishment of our nation, um, to understand our nation's challenges, our nation's triumphs um, from many different perspectives. One of the things we've not done a great job of um, throughout history um, is ensuring that there are multiple perspectives, multiple viewpoints that are part of our history. Um, with that said, I think there are ways, and I think we did this in Kentucky, to adopt academic standards at the state level um, that permit 
local districts, schools, and educators um, to adopt curriculum that aligns with high quality standards um, and ensures that kids are receiving um, the type of instruction in social, social studies that they need to have. Um, one of the things I, I shied away from as commissioner of education, and you know, a lot of folks didn't, uh, don't agree with this viewpoint, which is fine, is I didn't want to, at the state level, go so narrow in terms of curriculum and content that we took away the opportunity for districts and schools to adopt curriculum at the district and, and local level um, that aligns with their priorities, their needs. I think there has to be, there have to be some things that we're very tight on at the state level in saying this is what um, kids need to learn while at the same time permitting some flexibility at the district level for in Kentucky, for example, for Jefferson County to adopt curriculum that aligns with state standards that's not identical um, to the curriculum um, adopted in Monroe County. I, I, I don't think at the state level that it's appropriate, neither do I think it is wise for states to be so heavy handed um, or so strict um, in terms of adopting social studies content in particular that doesn't allow for that type of flexibility. There's so much diversity in our nation. There's so much diversity across states. I think trying to, to be too strict at the state level uh, would be a mistake. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lewis, for uh, your uh, celebration of diversity and uh, for sharing all of these thoughts about the ways in which we need to move forward in our educational system. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. I have been speaking with Wayne Lewis, former Commissioner of Education for the State of Kentucky and currently Dean of the Belmont School of Education in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.